electricity. someone who was in the dark because of the snowstorm where they lived. Someone in South Cape Coral where I live has been in the dark for about a week because a truck hit the power lines and the pole and somehow was such an impact with such devastation that it even pulled the electrical box out of their house. Now, I don't know all how that would have worked but they were without power for a long time because of that accident. So I guess maybe we all know what it's like to be in the dark. And I mean that literally in that case, but there are many other kinds of things that you and I are in the dark about, and we don't usually like that very well. Well, we're going to talk about a story that deals specifically with light and darkness, and we're going to trace the themes that go on in the Gospel of John just a little bit, not too much, just enough to point it out. But we're going to discover that it's a whole lot better to see. And it's a whole lot worse to be blinded by the light. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. And this is the place where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We'll see that a little bit in this story for sure. Maybe more than a little bit. It's amazing to me, I was reading a psalm just recently... And, and the psalm was expressing how much God wanted to bless the people if they would just turn to him and be loyal to him. It amazes me how much God wants to help us, but how sometimes we are so blinded by reality or our own wishes and wants or you fill in the blank that we just don't see what God is up to. And it's clear that God is up to bringing wholeness and healing to the people and the world he created. We live in the kind of uh, realized reality, but the not fulfilled time in his world history, a universal history, we might say. But one day, he's going to make all the wrongs right. And in the meantime, he wants us to have confidence in him. And so we're going to talk about some of those kind of things and the impact that it had on some people in this story of the man that was born blind but that Jesus healed. So what I'd like to do, and it's a very long story, I don't usually like to read quite this much, but, you know, it's, it's a remarkable story, and it's important for us to hear the words of the Bible. I try to regularly say, I probably don't say it often enough, here at church. Oh, did I tell you I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida? And I try to remind people often enough that, Really, what I have to say is not nearly as important as what we read from the scriptures on Sunday morning. And I know we have in this country quite a robust history of emphasis on the sermon. But really, emphasis on the scripture is what we ought to have. And of course, our sermons ought to emphasize the Bible. Well, anyway, that's what we try to do. At least that's what I try to do. I hope that's what all pastors try to do find what they have to say in the pages of God's Word, not just make it up because it sounds interesting to us. We need to apply what God says to our times to, to understand them better and to understand ourselves. But God's words are always more important than mine. I think if you've listened to this program, you are now saying, yes, that's right. <laughs> we understand that for sure. We've heard you go on and on about things. Well, I'm going to go on and on about this story, too. It's the story of Jesus' encounter with 
a blind man and the people around that saw what went on, and particularly the Pharisees and the man himself. So from John chapter 1, verse 1, I'm reading again from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Maybe different than yours. I don't think you can go wrong with any of the standard English translations. I encourage you to find the English translation that you will read and benefit from, or if you really struggle with reading, find one that you can listen to and that will help you. A lot of benefit gained from listening to the Bible. And in fact, we have so much advantage because in Jesus' day, they didn't have many copies of the scriptures. And now we have them everywhere. And they didn't have any way near the technology to listen like we do. So we are fortunate. The only way we, the only way we don't encounter the scriptures is because we refuse to. All right, get on with reading it. That's enough of that. Okay, chapter 9, verse 1. As he, and referring to Jesus here, as he, Jesus, walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he, meaning the blind man, he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him.
So, for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Quite a striking story. Quite a striking story. The blind man said to Jesus, Who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. Notice that Jesus said, You have seen him. The man who was blind now sees, You have seen him. You have seen Jesus. And the man responded, Lord, I believe. Quite a story. Quite a story indeed. And there's a number of things that we could talk about in here. And, and you notice that the man, when he was talking with the Pharisees, he talked about how, how how could they deny what had been going on? And he said, never in the history of the world has a man born blind been able to see. And that's true. In recorded Jewish history, there is no record of this ever happening before this time. And so it's really quite remarkable that that here they are with this kind of evidence right in front of them, struggling to believe. And this isn't the main point, maybe, of the story. Maybe it's part of the main point. But do you struggle to believe? I'm not even sure the Pharisees were trying to. I think they were more, based on the text here, trying to justify themselves. But, but do you struggle to believe? And if they couldn't believe on the evidence of a man born blind receiving his sight again from a man named Jesus, what evidence would it take to convince you to believe? Now, now really, that's a serious question. 
Uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, I'll know it when I see it. No, 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 no. Don't go around so quick. That's just evading the point. If you're seriously engaging in trying to believe, or if you seriously want to face your doubts, and let's face it, a lot of us have doubts. No shame in that. The, the real difficulty of that, the real, how should I say, uh, the real fault in that is the failure to address the doubts and then come to a better decision. So if you struggle to believe in the Pharisees, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, we're struggling to believe. I think they were trying to justify themselves. But nonetheless, what evidence would it take for you to believe? What evidence would it take for the light to come on in your life? And let me suggest the very fact that you're thinking about that and considering it, the very fact that you're listening today is evidence that something's going on, that, that God is giving you grace to get you to listen, to see, and to believe. What would it take for you to believe? Well, this is an interesting story, and it's in, interesting in the setting of the Gospel of John, where there's a lot of discussion of light and dark. A lot of that theme comes up. And so I don't want us to miss the idea that, that of this contrast between light and dark. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 5, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. So that's a fairly common description that we've heard before. It's very common. Uh, it almost never goes by. The season of Advent almost never goes by without people quoting that verse from Isaiah, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We think about that light and the coming of the light into the world. We have candlelight services on Christmas Eve to demonstrate the coming of light into the world. And, and even in John chapter 1, the very opening words of John chapter 1, let me turn to that and, and read that because it's really quite important that we understand that that this was such a, such a permeating theme through here that Jesus is talking about light and darkness. So, so John chapter 1, well-known, well-read, um, familiar verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. Now you remember those. See, see what God is saying to us is there's light in the darkness of this world, and the darkness will not overtake it. On the darkest moments, when you think darkness is winning, remember, the darkness will not overtake the light. Well illustrated by physical light, the smallest light in darkness is an enormous benefit and helps enormously guide the way. In the same way, God has not given up on us. There is light in the darkness of our world, in the spiritual darkness around us. God has not given up. Also, it's kind of interesting that a couple of weeks ago, here we talked about Nicodemus. And it's continuing that idea of light and dark. And, and some people can make too much of that. I don't want to make too much of it, but I don't want to make too little. Here was Nicodemus a Jewish leader who visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus, who needed the light, came at night. Quite fascinating. Here, 
the blind man was in the dark, and when he was seeing, he was in the light. So it's really, really important for us to kind of keep that in mind. It's the way that the ancient writers communicated to us and gave us more imagery to use our imagination to see the point that the Bible is trying to teach us. So we're going to look at four stories. We started with Nicodemus, the one I just mentioned. And in Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus, Jesus said, you must be born again. Very famous phrase. I remember emphasizing that I like the idea of born from above better. In Nicodemus's case, he needed a conversion experience. Uh, uh, he needed to experience Jesus in a new way. He, he needed that new life that comes from allegiance and loyalty to Jesus. Then at the story of the woman at the well we looked at last week, Jesus offered her living water. He didn't say anything to her about being born again, but he said he would offer her living water if she would just ask. And now here we have the similar idea Darkness becomes light with the touch of Jesus, and it does. And of course, next week, we're going to talk about Lazarus. I guess we haven't talked about that far ahead, but we're going to talk about Lazarus next week and, and how Jesus walked to the grave, to the tomb, and called Lazarus out, and he came back out from the dead. And so we see these kind of impacts that Jesus has on people, and, and they're all ways of the Bible using imagery to help us get at what God is up to. You know, if, if the idea of born again seems a little unusual to you, or you don't quite get that, maybe this idea of living water, and that's the image of the gospel for you, that the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit makes you full of living water that springs up within you, maybe that's what you need to understand to follow him. Or maybe what you need is light. Maybe you need convincing because the light just hasn't come on yet. Well, maybe the light will come on today. Maybe you will see it. Then, of course, you have to be either be blinded by the light or be willing to see because of the light. And maybe some people feel dead inside. And maybe next week when we talk about Lazarus being raised from the dead, that will be an imagery that helps you understand what God is trying to say. I used to worry and I used to think, what exactly is the one way God is trying to help us understand this. And then I began to realize there isn't one way. He uses all kinds of imagery for all kinds of people so all kinds of people could come to follow him. And that's what he wants. So what speaks to you? What is God's way of getting through to you? That's one reason that I ask the question occasionally, what evidence will it take to convince you? What evidence will it take to convince you? Because in John chapter 3, verse 19, just a few verses after that famous John 3, 16, it says this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Hmm, now there's something to think about. If you resist, is it because of evil deeds and you want to persist in those? What will it take to convince you? In that case, you won't be convinced by something. You'd rather do your evil deeds and stay in the dark. Well, that's pretty blunt. Yeah, that's pretty blunt, but it's true, isn't it? Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's just the way it is. Just don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who hangs on to evil deeds, okay? The other interesting thing is that, that there's a bit of a warning in here in terms of doing the works of God, because in, in verse 4, Jesus predicts the coming of night when no one can work. And it's a bit of an interesting statement, and it's a bit of a warning that, you know, the, the light won't stay on forever. 
So when Jesus calls, follow him. Don't put it off thinking, well, next time. Jesus says the light won't last forever. Night is coming. So we have this whole thing going on between darkness and light, and in this case, between blindness and vision. And blindness is is a terribly difficult thing to deal with. Many of us have read a bit about Helen Keller and how she got a serious illness before the age of two, and she lost both her sight and her hearing. She went through all kinds of difficulties growing up because how do you how do you manage when you can't hear and understand and communicate? You, you can't see to know what's going on around you. Uh, I can scarcely imagine the world of terror she must have, have lived within. But we also know that she was helped greatly. She overcame all of that. And later, she made this statement. A stunning statement for someone who had the life experience she did. She said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. You see, that's, that's the concern for us when we have physical sight, but we have no spiritual vision. And I want you to see with spiritual eyes today. Now, it's really quite interesting that Jesus does something we would not expect. He makes this clay, or this mud, as it says in the scriptures, out of, out of his own spit. And we think, ick. That's icky. Well, I don't doubt that it is. But that's what he did. And he put that on the blind man's eyes and he said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. Well, that's an interesting assignment. I guess we could speculate. We don't really have anything in the text to tell us why he did that. There is another account in the scriptures back in 2 Kings chapter 5 where Naaman was instructed to go to the river Jordan and wash and he would be healed of a skin affliction. So it's not unprecedented in the story of God. And so Jesus sends him off to the pool of Siloam. Now, it's also interesting that we now know where the pool of Siloam is and was. For a long time, we knew there was such a thing. We just didn't know where it was. It's, it's difficult after so many years to, to capture the location of all these things. But back in 2004, if I remember correctly, we discovered the actual location of the pool of Siloam. And so Jesus sent him off to the pool of Siloam, and you probably caught it in reading the story. Siloam means sent. So here's Jesus, who was sent by God, sending a man to the pool named Sent. And isn't it interesting how Jesus even engaged in some plays on words to get our attention and to help us get it. So he goes to the pool of Siloam, and he washes, and he's healed. It's also interesting that, that they may have picked up on this and, and wondered about it, because that water from the pool of Siloam was used for the feast that they sometimes celebrated. I don't know if they were celebrating at this particular time of year, but it was used for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so at the temple, when they used water for that feast, they used it water from the pool of Siloam. So he uses that ritual water, and it works on the man who is sent to the pool named Sent. Well, I don't know about the mud. I don't know about the sending to that. I, I, I know that when we anoint people for healing today, we don't use mud. And so it's kind of unusual that Jesus anointed him with mud. But he did. And there we are. But there's another question that pops up early in the, in the story. And that's the question of who sinned. Well, they asked the question because the, the assumption was that 
And, and Jesus' disciples asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, the assumption in those days was that sin resulted in some kind of consequences like this blindness. And it wasn't really an unusual thought. They all kind of agreed that that was the case. But Jesus doesn't answer the question in the way you might think. He answers it with words, and he says that God's work might be demonstrated. And then he demonstrated with healing by actually making the blind man see again. But we need to think just a little bit about this idea of who sinned. And, and only a little bit, I guess. Maybe we should talk about it more sometime. But a lot of times people people ask that question the, that usually comes out, why? Why this? Why that? And, and we need to be sensitive to that question. You know, when people ask that, it's usually out of some kind of painful situation in their life they've experienced. Why did... God allow this to happen? Or all too often, why did God make this happen? And, and by the way, God does not make bad things happen. We live in a broken world. We'll talk just a touch about that. But get over the idea that God makes these things happen. That's just not consistent with the Bible. God does allow things that I wish sometimes he didn't allow and you wish sometimes he didn't allow. But one of the really striking realities of the revelation of God to us is that it does no good for us to ask why. It's endlessly and ultimately unanswerable. We can't always figure out the why. Sometimes we can. Many times we can't. It's a far better question to ask, to what end? Or where do we go from here? Or how will God help us now? See, they asked why the man was born blind, and Jesus didn't even address that. He just moved on and told them God's work is going to be demonstrated, and then he healed the man, and it, the wrong was made right. The wrong of blindness was made right. I can't promise you that every wrong in your life will be made right if you ask different questions, better questions, but I know you'll get trapped in an endless cycle of dismay and ultimately probably despair if you keep asking why. Rather than that, ask, what is God doing? How can I learn to trust him? That's what faith is. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So don't ask why. Ask what's going on, to what end, how can I live through this? How is God helping me? How has God helped other people? What resources do I have to turn to that God will help us? In life's darkest moments, we have the resources for God to help us. And the resource is found in Jesus. He was the one who turned the darkness of the blind man into the light of being able to see. A long time ago, I read that somebody said God's only excuse is Jesus. Well, what he meant by that was... God didn't spare even himself the realities of life. Jesus suffered, went to the cross. All of the things that we experience, Jesus understood from experience. So it's better for us to think, okay, how do I get through this? How do I make sense of this? How do I make meaning out of this? How do I 
persevere through this rather than fall into the despair of, oh me, oh my, why did this have to happen to me? Because the bottom line is, what comes out of this story is that Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, and he wants to reveal himself to us as the Messiah. And sometimes we get the most insight in the hardest times of life. I don't wish that for you, not even for a moment. But I know that sometimes we grow on those hard places of life and we grow when we lean into them and live through them with our eyes on him rather than on the circumstance. And the blind man, when his eyes were opened, when he could see, he had his eyes on Jesus. Let's you and I, let's put our eyes on Jesus. Well, we're going to take a break. Just a minute. We're going to get back to the story and we're going to do some other things. I'm sure glad you joined us. We are going to shine more light in the darkness and we're going to come out seeing Jesus. Stay with us. I'll be right back. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis you'll be ready for what's next. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with clear. That is clear. X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. Working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. You're listening to 
Faith is with Pastor Rick Stevens. It's the place where we understand faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I like to consider these times that we spend together as thinking out loud on America out loud. I've thought about that for a long time. I haven't said it so much, but I just want to think my way with you through some of these important stories and passages from the Bible and help us gain confidence in God, put our trust in Him. And we're going to get back to the story of the man that was born blind in just a moment. But a few weeks ago, we started unveiling our church's list that we compiled earlier this year. I challenged our church to compile a list of the, it turns out to be 10 songs with five honorable mentions, the 10 songs that every, or I didn't say songs, sorry, 10 hymns that every Christian should know. And we had a pretty generous definition of hymns, but I asked them to to give serious consideration to that. What are the 10 hymns that every Christian should know? Not your 10 favorites. That would have probably resulted in a bit different list. But I asked them the 10 hymns that every Christian should know. And we've been counting those down here on the program starting a couple of weeks ago. And we started out talking about Jesus Loves Me. And last week we talked about Christ the Lord is risen today. That was number nine. And today, number eight is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's a great hymn of the church. You may be familiar with it. You may not. It sometimes has some contemporary settings. I'm most familiar with with the hymn and using it in church as a hymn. I like the hymns. Some people have trouble with that musical style. I like all kinds of musical styles, so that doesn't really bother me too much. But we generally focus on the text when we think about a hymn. And you might be interested to know that this text came because of an event that occurred in 325 A.D. Church leaders convened a council. And they worked on their beliefs and practices, what Christians should believe, what Christians should do. And they approved a document called the Nicene Creed. It's been passed down through the years. Churches use it as an affirmation of faith. The primary purpose of the creed was to establish belief in the Trinity. People didn't want to fall into error. They wanted to understand correctly and The leaders of the church wanted to make sure that the teaching was sound and that people understood that they needed to believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it countered a heresy that had sprung up in the church. And it wasn't a good thing, so they approved this creed that's been used in churches for years. Well, Reginald Heber decided to write a hymn. Reginald Heber was born in 1783. He was a very bright guy, well-educated, grew up to become a minister, and he wrote this text that we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And and remember, we're, we focus mostly on the text here. Um, interestingly enough, this tune was written specifically for this text. That's not always the case, but it was written for this one, and it's, this tune is almost always used with this text. But anyway, he wrote this text to reinforce the idea of Trinity. It's come down to us from all those long years ago, it's withstood the test of time. And I just want to remind us about it, and, and I want to read the, the hymn text, the four stanzas that we generally sing. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, 
Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints above thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now that, friends, is a hymn. I think it's terrific. I hope you enjoy it. If you're not a fan of hymns, I encourage you to develop a taste for them because they minister so well to our souls and our spirits. The tunes so often fit the text, and they just lift our spiritual imagination. And they help us see. Did you notice stanza three? Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. We've been talking about sight and blindness, and we want to see. And maybe that hymn will help you see sometime when you're considering that. So the story that that we have been looking at, the blind man who was healed by Jesus when Jesus put the mud on his eyes and sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash. We want to look at a few other things that that have gone on in the story. We can't cover everything, of course. But the story reveals Jesus. There's no question about that. And it uses testimony to help with that. And it reminds us of some things that we need to avoid. Now, testimony is one of the things that we are often called to give, and we need to stand up for our beliefs. And this man, who had been born blind, did just that. At first, in verse 11, he called Jesus by name. He was asked who healed him, and he said the man called Jesus. Well, that's a good description. Later, he was asked again, and he said, a prophet. Well, we don't know exactly what he meant by prophet, but he may have just simply imagined that Jesus was in the line of the Old Testament prophets he had heard about. But finally, verse 33, he described Jesus as a man from God. And and the Pharisees didn't take real kindly to that um, they they kind of ask rhetorically at the end of the story, as the writer wraps it up, surely we are not blind, are we? Well, I guess that's partly a question for us to answer. Were the Pharisees blind? It's partly a question for us to answer for ourselves. Are we blind? Now, one of the things that I have long thought about, and I don't always know how to overcome, but I have been conscious of, this idea of blind spots. You see, if there are blind spots, we just don't know. They're blind spots to us. And and I want to caution us that, that we think about that idea of blind spots a little bit so that we don't uh, find ourselves in a bad spot where we think we see and we don't. See, blindness is not just about not being able to see. It also could be seeing everything, the whole truth, all of the nuances of reality, but failing to acknowledge it, 
It could be failing to realize there are other perspectives that we need to see. And we need to see everything, and sometimes it takes us out of the familiarity of our comfort zone to see those things. Don't be afraid of that. I've known some people, in recent times we've had some conversations about things that something kind of challenges what they think is certain, certainly so, and they don't like the challenge much. They react against it. Well, you're not going to agree, and I'm not going to agree with everything we encounter but we need to encounter things that are challenging our perspective so we avoid blind spots. We want to make sure we see clearly. The Pharisees in this story had some blind spots and they didn't see clearly. Well, what do I mean by us having blind spots? Well, we live in a very ideologically driven age. People have their assumed ways of seeing the world. And let's be honest, ideology blinds people. We see that from the terrorist perspective. Their ideology has blinded them to anything but the way they see the world. In the same way, our ideology could blind us. And I think that for us, the way to help that is to focus on moral clarity. We need to understand clearly what is right and what is wrong. Now, too, peop- too many people, seems to me, start with their preferences, and then they try to justify those preferences and fit them in to a moral perspective. Well, instead of that, we need to have a clear moral understanding and then evaluate our preferences based on that. We need to form our preferences based upon absolute moral clarity. Not always easy, but necessary. So see, the examples are a little bit of that. Now we know that the Pharisees were trying to get people to be faithful to the covenant. That was a prime attempt of theirs. They had a way of seeing things. They thought the way they did things and thought about things. That was the way to do it. And and everybody should agree with them. And so they tried to persuade people to, to join them. But as it turned out, they became more loyal to their idea of faithfulness than loyalty to the God to whom they must be faithful. And they had a blind spot. In this case, one very clear example of that is they could not get past their view of the Sabbath. And so they challenged Jesus based upon his view of the Sabbath. And that blinded them to the bigger issue of, wow, a man that was born blind can see now. And only God could do that. So we need to be careful about our ideology And that it doesn't blind us to what is really so. Very easy to fall into that trap. And we need to be always willing to hold some of those things loosely so that if we see better, we can can think more clearly and make better choices in life. So not only does ideology blind, but loyalty blinds. Sometimes we are loyal to people and we can't see their faults. This happens in the church. We've seen stories of that where churches have been loyal to leaders in their church who have done terribly egregious moral failures and church people stand behind them to a fault. Their loyalty keeps them from, from naming the error and calling the person to repentance. It's also the most common thing that I've seen of this where loyalty blinds and 
And in a sense, you don't want to blame these people, but in a sense, they need to realize how many times have we heard on the news reports about a young man or a young woman that gets in trouble, legal trouble, breaks the law, and the parents talk about how they're such a good boy or such a good girl. They're often blind to the misbehavior of their children. That's true in youth groups too, by the way. If you have teenagers that go to youth group and the youth leaders come to you and say, did you know your daughter or your son did this? You're not going to want to believe some of the things, but you need to listen carefully because teenagers are different when they're in a group of teenagers. Don't be misled. But that's a common blind spot because of loyalty to our children. And we need to make sure that um, we don't have blind spots that affect our loyalty to Jesus, our allegiance to Jesus. And I frequently mention to people that we need to watch out for those events or situations or people that pop up from time to time that challenge our loyalty. Do we let Jesus break the tie? Or do we do what we want or what we think pleases someone else? Do we justify what we want or do we look to Jesus and follow him? Very important. Another thing that I was thinking about, ignorance blinds. Now, it's really interesting to me that when we talk about blind spots, some of us, you probably are like this too, you don't want to have any blind spots. You want to understand clearly. But there are people that sometimes they engage in willful ignorance. I don't use that word ignorance as a pejorative to be using language that talks down to someone or brands them a certain way or describes them unkindly. I mean, they just don't want to know, and so they refuse to know, and so they have a blind spot because they willfully reject knowing. And and you've heard it before, and we need to recognize it, that sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. Now, that's not willful. That's just life. We can't know everything. That's just, I just didn't learn that. No one exposed me. Nobody explained that to me. But nonetheless, when we don't know things, that that can sometimes blind us. So we need to be careful about those so that we don't get caught up in the Pharisees' problem. That's one of the reasons I mentioned earlier what will convince you. Because if you are willfully putting off any evidence that would convince you to follow Jesus, then, then you're developing and reinforcing in yourself those blind spots. And, and we, we want to overcome those. And, and the people who reject Jesus are, are essentially becoming blind of their own free choice. It, have you realized that when you become blind of your own free choice, it's incurable? Because you've rejected the truth? Re- you've rejected even a willingness to consider? So, careful about those blind spots. That's not a good thing. And the Pharisees did engage in that kind of talk because they, at one point, asked a kind of a peculiar question or made a kind of a peculiar statement, however you want to look at it, that they didn't know where Jesus had come from. Well, in the ancient world, when you tried to deny knowing where someone came from, that was a way of of, uh, denigrating their value. And they did that purposefully. And that's not a good thing at all. All right, so third thing we should talk about, and we've talked about the couple of other things, but we should talk about the idea of testimony a little bit. And, and in this story, the blind man gives testimony several times. He's asked early on, who healed you? And, and his answer was, Jesus. He was asked later, and his answer was, a prophet. 
And then later, when he talks to Jesus, he recognizes Jesus is the Messiah, and he comes to what we would call faith in Messiah and honors Jesus. Now, it's also interesting that part of the testimony that takes place in this story was given by the parents of the blind man. The Jewish authorities, and keep in mind when we talk about Jewish authorities, everybody in the story was Jewish. So this is not a denigration of Jewish people. The Jewish authorities, when when John refers to the Jews, he's not denigrating them. He's describing a group of people. The Jewish authorities asked the the man who had been blind, what happened? And they express all kinds of reluctance to tell them what happened. Well, what's going on with that? That's, that's a very interesting thing. Why would they be so reluctant to speak up for their son? Well, there were social considerations that were going on there, and they knew there was a price to be paid if they didn't answer the way they wanted them to. If they didn't say what the Pharisees wanted to hear, there could be trouble. And in fact, they were afraid that they would be put out of the synagogue, disfellowshipped in one way or another. Excommunicated, we sometimes say. We don't know exactly what that meant in total, but it certainly was something they did not want to experience because they didn't want the social consequences to that. The man who was blind stood up for that and they threw him out of the synagogue. There was a consequence. I bring that up to bring up that today, standing up for that which is true and right will sometimes bring some social consequences. I don't know if you heard about it. It's just a couple days ago I saw this, that a Vermont Christian school refused to participate in a state basketball tournament. This was a girls' basketball team, and they refused to participate in the basketball tournament because the opponent that they were about to face had on the other team a transgender student, meaning they had a boy who was saying he was a girl. And they refused. They said it's unfair for our girls to participate against the the guys, and in this case, this young man, and it's not safe. Well, we can understand the fairness and the safety. Almost always in any kind of competition, boys are stronger, faster, bigger than the girls, and so it's not fair. And that's the whole point of having girls' athletic endeavors. But they also said it's not safe because... Well, somebody could get hurt. We understand that. And so they, rather than participate, this Christian school, mid-Vermont Christian school, forfeited the game in the tournament. Well, I thought that was pretty courageous of them when I saw that. I thought, yeah, good for you, standing up for what you believe and for what's right. And the news report that I saw didn't go into all of the rationale they had. It, It emphasized that they said it's unfair and unsafe. So I took it for that. Well, along comes another report that now says that their school, Mid-Vermont Christian School, has been essentially kicked out of the athletic association that runs the tournaments, and they will not be allowed to participate in any tournament, not just the girls' basketball team, but no team from that school, because they didn't like the fact that they called them out over the transgender student. Well, that's a social consequence. Now, I I applaud them for standing up for a principle, for what they believe. They're exactly right. That's the whole point of girls' sports, is to create a level playing field for the girls. So the girls are not second-class athletes. They have a girls' 
lane, the take and play sports in, and the boys have a boys lane, and that, that should not be blurred. So I thought they were exactly right. Good for them. But along comes this sanctioning body. They call themselves the, uh, where is it, the Vermont Principals Association said that they can't participate anymore because they violated their policies and their principles. Well, I don't know how it's all going to be resolved. They will appeal that, and there will be further conversations about that. I hope that the people in charge come to their senses and let the girls play the girls and not insist on doubling down on this. But we need to understand that sometimes standing up and giving testimony for that which is right will have social consequences, and we need to make sure we understand that. Now, this man in the story, he seemed to be just fine with that. He, um, he was an adult. It's clear from the story that he could give testimony on his own. He was of age. And he was willing to speak up and to identify that it was Jesus that did this. He didn't worry about that. And they got mad at him and threw him out of the synagogue. So he accepted that. That was a social consequence, and he didn't seem to mind. And I wonder how many of us, are willing to stand up when the time comes. And I don't know what the issues might be, but that's partly why I keep mentioning to people that loyalty matters. Will we be loyal to Jesus? Because sometimes we will be put in positions where we will have to choose loyalty from someone we love because Jesus gets our first allegiance, our primary loyalty. It's not because the people we care about are diminished, not at all. It's not because we might not want to play in the basketball tournament. They probably did. But they recognized that there were principles involved to which they needed to be loyal. To be sure, they didn't say they were doing this to be loyal to Jesus. They just refused to go along with the line of the day that they recognized violated significant and important principles. And I applaud them for that. I think that was the right decision. Now let's go back a little bit to this idea we touched on at the beginning just to make sure we understand where we've come. We started out by the disciples asking the question, who sinned? And that was a common question, common expectation in those days. And, and to be sure, the teachers of that day, they were correct to understand that suffering and death are the result of sin. We live in a broken, fallen world. We should not overlook that. It's simply true. What they missed was that there isn't a direct correlation, a direct connection between a consequence and sin. And in this case, there wasn't the case that someone had been born blind. It was a case that sin had entered the world and Jesus was going to show them not so much the why of this, but of look what God is up to. He was moving on to what God was doing and he was shining light in darkness, making wrong things right. That's the key point of what Jesus did. And it's really quite, as one writer said, a splendid reversal of roles. The man who was assumed to be in sin, in spiritual darkness, could see God's light. Whereas the Pharisees, the people that were supposed to be the enlightened ones, they could see physically. Everybody thought they should be the spiritual guides to all of this, but it turns out they were spiritually blind. And the story demonstrates quite a reversal, and that's what God is up to in our world. He's trying to get us to understand that he's here to help us see. But it's also another problem, because sometimes when the light shines, God helps some of us see, 
but others who think they see turn away blinded by the light. Don't let the light blind you. See the light of Christ in Jesus. And come to faith. Come to absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. He wants you to follow Him. Join me. Let's follow Him. We'll be back here next week.